there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. Well, good morning. So if you don't know who I am, my name is Jacob. I help lead the students at this, at this church. Um, you are welcome to call me Jacob. I'm not our head pastor, if you're, not new, if you're new. His name's Jerry. He's like nine feet tall. He wears glasses. He's not here this Sunday. <laughs> so in my life, I think I've met maybe one or two people who say that Ecclesiastes is their favorite book of the Bible. Um, in fact, when I talk to people about the Bible, very few actually talk about the book of Ecclesiastes at all. Now, you guys are a little bit different because Jerry told me that, I think he said like four years ago, you guys actually went through Ecclesiastes. Um, many of you probably don't remember any of it anyway, but, um, but I think some reason why the, a lot, not many people talk about Ecclesiastes is in some ways it feels kind of like the odd book out in the Bible. Right? Two books before Ecclesiastes, we have the book of Psalms, which is a song book of praise. And then after the Psalms and immediately before Ecclesiastes is you have the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs, as we've studied quite a bit this summer, is a book full of wisdom um, and just powerful wisdom words. And Proverbs chapter 31 ends with, in verse chapter 31, with the marks of a godly woman. And then you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and it goes like this. Meaningless! Meaningless! Says the preacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Well, all right then, all right? <laughs> it seems kind of like the writer of this book of Ecclesiastes, who is often referred to as the preacher or the teacher, he seems kind of like a glass-half-empty kind of guy. Or maybe more appropriately, he sounds like a glass fell down, shattered into a thousand pieces, fell into my feet. He's that kind of guy. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, um, written by C.S. Lewis, the author of Ecclesiastes seems to have a little bit in common with the character Puddleglum from The Silver Chair. In, in one section of that book, the, one, the, the main character is there traveling down this cliffside. It's very, very dangerous. And Puddleglum, this character, he says, the bright side of it is that if we break our necks getting down the cliff, then we're safe from being drowned in the river. <laughs> Positive outlook, right? Now, the word meaningless um, in our translation is vanity. It's, in, it's translated, or it's, I'm, I'm sorry, it appears in this book of Ecclesiastes 38 times. So I think it would be very easy for us to assume that this book is for the Debbie Downers or the puddle glums of the world. You know, everything's meaningless. But when we start to take the time to dive into the pages of Ecclesiastes, once we get past verse 1, we realize that the theme of this book is not that everything is meaningless or everything's falling apart. But what this book does teach, it says that when one spends his or her life pursuing earthly pleasures and earthly desires, 
When one makes himself his own God, then that life has no true purpose. To put it very bluntly, as the preacher does, that life is meaningless, and a change needs to take place. So the overarching theme of Ecclesiastes can be found in the last chapter in chapter 12, which says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The purpose of every man, every woman, every child, every creature in the sky, in the sea, and everywhere in between is to worship and serve God our maker. And life is meaningful when we are fulfilling that God-given purpose, when we are worshiping and serving our God, our maker. So obviously today, this morning, we're not going to spend our time going through every 12 chapters Um, But the four verses that Sandy read a moment ago, they do tell us, and they kind of point us to that overarching theme of serving God, our maker. And what I love about these four verses, too, is that they give us some very practical ways of what this life actually looks like. And these verses, they commend, they call us to choose joy because God is at work in his world and our lives. So we're going to spend a little time talking about how we can do that and what it looks like to choose joy when... We live in the world that we do, and our lives look the way they look. So three, three different ways. So first, we find joy when we recognize that God is at work. So if we wanted to shorthand to say God's work. Now, if you're following along when we read these verses a minute ago, that, sound, this, that idea sounds kind of contradictory to verse 14. But one thing I love about the Bible is that it doesn't look at the world and life in general through rose-colored glasses. It doesn't make the world and life to seem to be just this wonderful joy ride where nothing goes wrong, there's no issues, no problems whatsoever. In fact, what the Bible does, it actually tells us much the opposite. The Bible tells us the world's screwed up, that's messed up, it's fractured, that's not the way it was meant to be. From Genesis chapter 3 onward, it talks about how sin, which is human rebellion against God, it has ravaged the world. It's affected every single part of the world. And in verse 14, we see a very kind of clear effect of sin in the world that all of us experience regularly and probably daily. What we see oftentimes is that righteous people experience hardships, while evildoers experience blessings and prosperities. We all know one or two people, probably more, who take advantage of others, who cheat and scam people on the daily. These people are slimy, and we want nothing more for them to get what they deserve. Unfortunately, that's not usually what happens, right? You have individuals who only get richer, You get these people that they get bigger houses, they get bigger toys, they get invited to more parties, they're surrounded by fans, and their lives seem to get only better and better despite their evil evil deeds and their sliminess. And then on the flip side, there's the other type of person too, right? Where we know people that just can't seem to get a break, where they are loving, they are kind, they're generous, and it seems like they're always fighting sickness or um, disease. They struggle to pay the bills. Uh, They're not featured in magazines. They're not invited to exclusive parties. They appear to be doing everything right, to living rightly, and yet they experience hardships. So all that idea leads us to a big question that I'm sure everyone here has asked at one point or another. And that question is, 
Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, this question has caused debates over the course of history. And for some critics, they will, this is the kind of the silver bullet. This question is what kills Christianity. Because they argue that if God is, God is not truly good if he allows bad things to happen. Or, to put it a different way, you can't say that God's all-powerful if he can't stop bad things from happening. So what we have to ask ourselves is how do we respond? Because this is a big question, one that we've all thought about, and critics of Christianity love to throw it in our face because they're like, got him. So how do we respond? Well, I would argue that the best place for us to turn is to God himself and his word. And there's a few different places we could turn, but we're, this morning we're going to look at the life of Joseph, which is documented in the, life, in the book of Genesis. Now, many of you are familiar with him, or this, this man. Other people may not be, so I want to give a quick summary. All right, so Joseph, he was the son of Jacob, who, in addition to having Joseph, Jacob had 11 other sons. However, Jacob was a crummy father, to say the least, and he, not, not me, but him, you know. Um, <laughs> but, so... He made, he knew, he had, Joseph was his favorite, and he didn't hide it very well at all. So Joseph's brothers, they obviously saw that he was the favorite. They hated him for it. They despised him. So once they had an opportunity, they found, they threw him to pit, sold him to slavers who took him to Egypt to be sold as a slave. And during his time in Egypt, it was a very turbulent time, lots of ups and downs. Right? He was bought by a name a guy named Potiphar, but Joseph rose up in the house as a slave, and in fact, in many ways, kind of ran the house, so much so that Potter wasn't worried about anything except the food that he ate. Unfortunately, though, he, Joseph was a very good-looking guy, and jo- Potiphar's wife took notice of that, so she tried to regularly seduce this man. But Joseph was a godly man. He resisted over and over and over again, and finally, there's kind of came to a head, and he scorned the wife, and she accused him of um, rape, and Joseph was thrown into prison for years. But God gave Joseph this powerful ability to interpret dreams, and that meant he was actually interpreting the dreams of even the Pharaoh himself, who promoted Joseph to prime minister of the Egyptian empire. Fast forward years later, there was a famine that came across the whole land, and Joseph was reunited with his family who had come to Egypt to get food. And Jacob's whole household actually came and lived in Egypt for some time when they were taken care of. However, when, Jacob's, when Jacob died, the brothers started worrying. They're like, since our father's dead, we're going to get, um, Joseph's going to take revenge on us because, you know, dad's dead. But Joseph, he said something profound that really applies to that big question. He said, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's brothers, they meant to kill him, and they meant to make some money off of it while they were at it. But God meant it for good. And that good actually meant the deliverance of thousands of people from starvation, even Joseph's own household. Now, we're not to take this to mean that when my car breaks down next week, that means I'm going to become prime minister of Egypt the week after. (laughs) It's important to note that Joseph had actually years went by for him, years in slavery, years in prison, And these years went by without any clear answers whatsoever as to why these things were happening to him. And many of us in this room can relate to this very issue. 
Many of us have gone through years of waiting, of praying, of frustration, and tears without a single answer. We try to do the right things. We try to live righteously, and not, as Scripture teaches us, God teaches us to do, and yet the trials, the heartbreaks, and the pain just keep going. At the end of the day, the end of the week, end of the year, it seems like everything just feel meaningless. But friends, I want to remind us this morning that we serve a good God. And just as he did amazing things in the life of Joseph many years ago, he is now working for the good of those who love him, even at this very moment. Now, for the skeptic, though, they may say, well, you know, you Christians, you're just choosing to be oblivious, right? You're choosing to ignore or minimize bad things, then claiming that God is good. You know, you're just kind of like saying, oh, it's not that bad, when actually it is bad. But as Christians, we don't live by sight. We live by faith. And I, I love what the late Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot said. So if you don't know who Elizabeth Elliot is, her husband was Jim, and he was the man that was killed famously many years ago uh, by a native tribal group in Ecuador. And what, so she had that. So her husband was killed, and then later on she remarried, and her husband died of cancer. So considering these times of suffering, though, she said this, the experiences of my life are not such that I can infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful necessarily. To have had one husband murdered and another disintegrate body and soul and spirit through cancer is not what you would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks like just the opposite. But she goes on. My belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct. It is by faith. And this is powerful. Get this. I had to read this five, six times to actually kind of get it. To apprehend God's sovereignty working that love is, we must say it, the last and greatest victory of the faith that overcomes the world. What this is saying, and again, it's kind of confusing. You have to read it many times to get it. But what she's saying is that God's sovereignty and his love intertwine. There's too many false teachers out in the world today that kind of say, well, God, his love conquers all, even despiting when it does, God's love does overcome. But it's not this thing where God's love overcomes his goodness or his justice. Like God's sovereignty is love. They intertwine in a wonderful, mysterious way that to actually fully believe in is faith. You know, as Christians, we answer the skeptic not saying, no, we are just ignoring the bad things. We're not choosing ignorance but we're choosing, to, we're choosing faith in the work and the character of God, and we trust in the one who holds all things together. Amen. And this faith, it's joy-filled. Right? That's one of our big themes today is joy. We, it's joy-filled because we recognize that God is doing great things in our lives and through our lives. And someday we're all going to be able to look back and say, wow, God, you truly are good. If you have trouble believing this, because I know there's people in this room that are like, I don't believe that. If you have trouble believing that, I encourage you to talk to a fellow saint and ask them, how has God worked in, your, in their life? Talk to somebody this week. Actually, after the service, talk to them. Ask that question. How has God worked in their life? Because I promise you that it will be an edifying conversation for both you and the person you're asking Going back to Elizabeth Elliot with a powerful testimony, her, you know, she went to be mission, her husband went to be a missionary, he was killed. She remarried years later, husband died of cancer. 
In the case of her husband being murdered, that actually meant the eternal salvation of dozens of tribal members who actually killed her husband. Because she went back years later after her husband killed, went to that same tribe, and they were amazed that this woman would come despite what they'd done to her husband. And that, her going, God using that situation, meant that dozens of people of that tribe became Christians and were eternally saved, and we'll see them in heaven someday. God is the one who has given us each day under the sun. And what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to find joy in each day because we know the one who holds the day and the world in his hands. All right, second way that this text shows us we're supposed to find joy. All right, we find joy when we devote ourselves to the search for wisdom. In verse 14, the preacher says that he devoted his heart to know wisdom. Earlier this morning, we talked about how the purpose of every individual is to worship God and serve Him. And one truth about God that should give us great joy is that He is the creator of order. He is the creator of reason. He's the creator of truth. He has made a creation that has functionality. So we can see that in many ways. He's created a system of, in which the water cycles in order to take care of the earth. He's given us the gift of language so that we can communicate thoughts and ideas and dreams to one another. You know, he's given me a voice that I can use to send sound waves out, and you guys have ears that can capture those sounds and process them. He's given us a system of gravity which grounds us, bad joke I know, um, but at the same time, while it keeps on the sound of gravity, it doesn't crush us. He's also created this intricate and wonderful system of life in which a human, our tiny and precious human baby develops over time, a period of months, and that once that tiny person is born, they can survive outside the womb. It really is amazing to see what God has made, and all, like, to truly ponder it, and that too, that we can know it. We can understand these things in this world. So what the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, which I had to spell like seven times before I finally got it, I think, um, but yeah, go home and practice spelling Ecclesiastes. But what the, what the preacher here is doing is he's commending us to be a people that are searching for wisdom, to be people who are actively seeking to understand about how the world works. We may ask why? The reason we study the world is by studying the world and everything in it, we also learn more about the one who made everything. Fun fact about me, I am a terrible artist. Awful, absolutely awful. In school, art class was one class that I never looked forward to because I have this amazing ability to picture something in my mind and then as it's going to the paper, it just doesn't, doesn't work. I mean, I just, my poor mother, right? All these kids are getting these beautiful vases and pots and Christmas ornaments, and I get something that looks like my toddler's mate. So, but while myself, I'm a terrible artist, a poor artist, one thing I've really come to appreciate and respect over these last few years is how other people can paint beautiful masterpieces, how other people can sculpt, um, you know, these beautiful pieces of, make these pieces of clay into these beautiful pots. And I, I've come to appreciate that not just because I, what they make is impressive, which it is, or not just because I'm jealous, I'm a little jealous, but I love seeing other people's art because their pieces reveal things about the artist. How true expressions of art, they reveal personalities, they reveal desires, dreams, and aspirations, sometimes fear. Art has this ability to reveal the inner workings of someone's heart. Friends, we should be studying the world because we can learn more about God through our, 
through his art, through his creation. We can learn more about him through studying it. We can see God's heart through what he has made. A few different examples. We can, one, we can see that God is a caring God for the way that he feeds the sparrows or the terrifying vultures that are everywhere around here. If you're a Florida native, I need you to know right now, that is not normal. All, the, all, all these vultures are, it's creepy, it's scary. <laughs> we can, so we can see how God's caring by the way he takes care of the birds. We can see also how God is a God of order by the way that he raises the sun and lowers the sun every day and every morning or every evening. Two, two, one thing, if you take a walk through a flower garden or a you know, botanical garden, I went to Florida Tech's area, that was awesome, but to go through this, take the time to look at the intricate design of the flowers and the leaves and the trees that God has made, how God even pays attention to the smallest details in his, in his creation. We can also feel the love of God and the fact that none of us have to had to physically pump our lungs this morning as we've been sitting. We are not deists, right? A deist means or believes that the world, God made the earth and now he's just not a part of it. He's not around. God's nothing more than a silent observer. But if you read the Bible, the God of the Bible, the God of the past, the present, and the future, he's not silent, and he is active in his creation, and he's knowable. And those are two wonderful things that go hand in hand, that he's active in his creation, that we can know him. He moves around the stars and the cosmos, and at the same time, he's also in this room, and he's working in our hearts and transforming our minds. As Christians, we should be seeking to be the best doctors, best scientists, best psychologists, groundskeepers, builders, farmers, you fill in the blank, because we believe that this world belongs to our Father, and he has called us, each one of us, to be a steward of it. And though through our stewardship, we will find joy because we will begin to grasp the work that God has done and he is doing in all of creation. Our text doesn't, or does remind us that we will not be able to understand everything, right? Verse 17 says, man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Uh, cut off. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This verse serves as a great reminder for us that God is God and that we are not. That we're called to devote ourselves to the search of wisdom, to find joy in it, but at the end of the day, we do need to be reminded that there's some things that are just too wonderful for us to understand. And we're going to end this morning just with one more of those wonderful things that we can rejoice in. We are to rejoice that Christ has conquered evil through his work on the cross. And we started this message just a little bit ago about how, that, with that key questions, why do bad things happen to good people? But when we read the scriptures, we come to a harsh reality that none of us are truly good. That every single one of us is a sinner. That each one of us is a rebel who desires to be the God of our own lives. And we desire to put our place or put ourselves in the place of God. You know, we would like to think that we're good, but the reality that Scripture teaches us time and time again is that we are worse sinners than we can imagine. But there was one individual who was truly good. There was one person who lived a perfectly righteous life, one person who was truly good, and that person was Jesus Christ, who is God himself. 
Just think about all the bad things that happened to Jesus in his lifetime. He was rejected by his own family members. They called him crazy. He was rejected by his hometown. Again, the same, very similar response to his family. The religious authorities, the ones that were supposed to know the Bible front to back, they rejected him, called him hypocrite and a blasphemer. His closest friends abandoned him when things got dicey. He was put through a sham of a trial at the middle of the night when it was not legal at all. And then when he was in that trial, he was beaten and spit on during the trial. Roman guards, they mocked him, they humiliated him, they beat him. He was forced to walk and carry the wood that was going to be used to kill him. He was subjected to one of the most cruel ways of execution in human history, which was a slow death on a cross. Onlookers mocked him as they walked past. And then, even to make it even worse, criminals who were being crucified for horrific crimes themselves, they also made fun of him while he was on that cross. So what we have to ask ourselves, really, is why do these bad things happen to the one truly good man? And this is where that truly incomprehensible but wonderful thing called salvation comes into focus. Because that truly good man, why did bad things happen to him? It's because he chose to let those things happen to him. That despite our sinful rebellion against him, He looked on us not with hatred or disgust, but out of love. He chose to love us. So much so that he was willing to take on bad things, as many bad, all the bad things of the entire world. He chose to put those on himself to pay the punishment that we deserved. And this paid punishment means eternal life in heaven with God himself. You know, we have to, I I need to remind myself this as well. God was not required to do this. God did not owe us something. Again, we're bad. We're sinful people. We're rebellious people. He doesn't owe us anything. But Ephesians 2, which we've heard many times, is such a powerful verse when we recognize how bad we truly were and are. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Friends, there is nothing greater to rejoice in than our salvation. Because in Christ, through this salific work that Jesus did, we are transferred from the realm of darkness into the kingdom of life. Where we have been moved from death to life. This morning's kind of theme in a roundabout way has revolved around rejoicing. And if you are a Christian, I really want to ask you this morning, when was the last time you considered how significant your salvation is? When was the last time that you thanked God for truly saving you? When was the last time that you rejoiced in the fact that your salvation is secure, that you no longer have to fear death and what comes after it? Because Jesus has nailed your sin to the cross. A Christian salvation from sin and death is foundational to our lives. And the joy that we find in Christ should shape every aspect of the way that we live. The way that we respond to trials and conflicts should 
should reflect that joy. The way that I speak to my spouse should reflect that joy. The way I treat my children, my work ethic, the way I treat my body, the way that I use my free time, the list, the list can go on and on. We're supposed to do every single thing with an unearthly joy in our hearts. That's why in verse 15, the preacher said, there's nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be merry. He's not telling us all to go to Applebee's and get drunk after this. What he's saying is eating and drinking are vital and necessary tasks that we need to do to stay alive. And all the things that seem even mon- seem that all the things that seem mundane, the smallest tasks, they all should be done with a level of joy. Not the happiness that we find based on our current life circumstances, because we all know our lives can switch back very quickly. But we're supposed to find joy that comes from the Lord who has saved us. I, talked to, I was talking to Pastor Jerry this, this week earlier. He said something really profound. He said, joy is a product of our faith. Some of you here have never experienced this sense of joy. Maybe this idea of salvation is just abstract to you. But I would really encourage you this morning, if that describes you, to consider the work of Jesus. I want, to cons- want you to consider how the work of God came, himself came to die for you. God came to die for you. He came, he came to remove the burden of sin that weighs you down. And he, want, and he died to change your status from rebel to son or daughter. So if that does describe you this morning, I really want to encourage you to go to our care area after the service. It's going to be around the corner by those couches. I really want you to talk to someone there. Because they are there to pray for you and to care for you, help you process some of the things that may be going on in your life. Right? Maybe you have some, just a, a series of bad things happening, and you just don't understand why. Go talk to them. They would love to pray with you and be with you. Friends, this may be, I don't know where you're at, but this may be the day of your salvation. I really want to encourage you to rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good. We don't always comprehend fully what it, how this salvation happened, that you would look down on us with love despite our undeserving, um, undeserving of it. Help us to rejoice in that fact that you have saved us and you are with us, that you are speaking to us and working in our lives each and every day. Help us to find joy in that. Help us to have a joy that is a product of our faith in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.